Welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I'm Rustin, and I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Aaron. Every couple of weeks, Aaron and I will get together to discuss some kind of really cool uh, topic within the wild and wonderful world of ecology, evolution, and natural history. And uh, this time around, we've decided to talk about urban environments, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, we're getting more and more of them. We're not going to have any less of them. So it's interesting to see how wildlife is adapting to them. And also what wildlife adapts to urban environments. Yeah, and what wildlife we're going to be seeing a lot more of in the future. Yeah, it's uh, what it, it's going to stick. Yeah, cities aren't going it's anywhere. The People keep talking about how they they might get altered or changed, but they're going to be there, you know? You have to have a city. I mean, you don't have to have it, but if you want to have a lot of people, you have to have a lot of cities. I mean, you kind of do have to have a city, or at least more densely populated areas. I mean, unless you want people, like, actually living in most of Siberia. We could revert and go full tribal. Hunter-gatherers. Not really. Not the same way that we did millions of years ago, because... Oh, no, not with the amount of people we have now. Right, that's what I'm saying. No, no. No, it'd have to be, like, a lot less people. Right, you'd have to cut the population by, like, 90%, and then maybe we could make it work again. Yeah. I would like to go on record saying that I do not support that. No, no, no. Uh, coexistence, that's a, that's a way to go. Agreed, agreed. Keep our preserves and our national parks. Absolutely. All right, so, with that in mind, am I up or are you up? You are up. Okay, so... <clears throat> When you proposed urban animals for our next topic, I I'm not gonna lie, I knew exactly which what animal to talk about. Um, it's one which has had its population decline severely due to human action, but overall has adjusted phenomenally in recent years to urban habitat. And on top of it all, it's a really cool animal to discuss. You got any guesses? Peregrine falcon. God damn it. That's it. That is actually it, right? it. Yeah, <laughs> I I knew you'd pick that. You know, you know. Every time I do it, I every time I select a topic, I'm like, okay, maybe Aaron's gonna guess what I'm gonna talk about this time around. This is the first time you've actually guessed it correctly. Yeah, I think it's the first time. Uh, there was like one occasion where you said I considered that, but I didn't do it. Right, Th- that's happened a couple times where I'm yeah. like. You know, Aaron's probably going to think I'm going to go this way, but I'm going to go a different way just to confuse him a little bit and throw him off guard. But yeah, there was really no other option for me but the peregrine. So, bit of background. Uh, peregrine falcons are a very widely distributed species. They're found on every continent except for, say it with me, Antarctica. Antarctica. Yep. Um, not a lot there. No, not really. Must we start building cities there? <laughs> Overpopulation, I mean, put a city or two there. Yeah, and how are you going to sell those apartments? Have you seen rent in New York? <laughs> Tell you what. Still. If, if rent's still, under $1,000 a month, I, I might consider it. Still. Imagine that sales pitch. Like, hey, you ever see March of the Penguins? You remember how cold those penguins looked in winter? Have you ever thought about joining them? Well, have we got the deal for you. They just put on Happy Feet, and everyone changes their minds. Yeah, but Happy Feet takes place in the summer, mostly. So, Like, I could tell the difference from watching Happy Feet that it takes place in the summer. Okay, but if you're living on a continent where you can't tell the difference between summer and winter, and there's always snow on the ground, you probably don't want to live there. Maybe. All I'm saying is I'm not buying... We got a couple Alaskan listeners. Let's not outs them in front of everyone. Let me be clear. I'm not trying to shit on Alaska. I would actually very much like to visit that state at some point. It looks beautiful, but I would like to go on record saying that I am not going to buy or invest in an Antarctic apartment or condo anytime soon. Okay, well, fair enough. Okay. So, as for the peregrine falcons themselves, they're relatively small and dense, at least for a bird of prey, and they generally live near cliffs where they nest. Um, Unlike some other birds of prey, they put almost no effort into nest building, they really just find a nice-looking dent in a rock where they can lay eggs. That's pretty much all they do. They put in the bare minimum amount of effort here. Like, 
you see these nests that eagles will build that take, you know, decades to build and they're huge, enormous, and they basically take up an entire tree. Yeah, peregrine falcons are like the exact opposite of that. Aren't pigeons somewhat similar in that regard? Yes, a lot of doves nest similarly, correct. It's not very impressive, you know. As for their life cycle, they lay eggs. The young will fledge in a little over a month, at which point they begin to hunt for themselves. And this species specializes in hunting other birds, and they have evolved truly incredible flying abilities to do this. So this is the part that most people probably know a lot about, um, and that is their flying and diving ability. So peregrine falcons typically cruise or casually fly at about 30 miles per hour, which can increase to almost 70 miles per hour when flying in pursuit of prey at the prey's level. So if they're just chasing the prey, they that's the speed they usually fly at. Um, people hear about peregrine falcons flying at 200 miles an hour, and they don't usually do that. If they're chasing a prey, if they're chasing a prey animal, they're doing it at about 70 miles an hour, which is still really impressive, but doesn't quite reach the number that a lot of people remember. It's better than me. So. Oh, absolutely. That's better than complain. my average highway speed. So I was just thinking a good sprint for me. It's it's nowhere near that. Right, right. Aaron, I would be astounded. I, I, I think most people aren't, but, you know, I'm trying to stay humble here. Okay, but if you if you talk about you sprinting and a peregrine falcon in the same sentence, there's no way that you come off sounding humble. I, I'm sorry. I'm saying I would lose. I'm I'm being realistic. I I know my limitations. There's people that think they can beat gorillas in fights. Okay, sure. But you're still impl- I know my limitations. You're still implying that that is a fair competition in terms of speed between you and a peregrine falcon. And I'm sorry, that is No, I'm not. I I'm saying it wasn't at all. I'm saying this comp- I'm saying I know my limitations. You see these memes circulating where you ask a guy what animal he thinks he could take in a fight, and they always say, like, chimpanzee or orangutan. They're not beating a chimpanzee or orangutan. Those things are like pure muscle. Rip you in half. Okay, so I'm not saying those people aren't ridiculous, but I am saying that you did imply that there is a legitimate race where you compete with a peregrine falcon. Okay, Michael Phelps raced a shark. So okay, Michael Phelps did happen. not race a shark. Michael Phelps had on a special diving bodysuit condom that they put on him with a giant fin on the back, and then he kind of swam at the same speed as a shark. He did not race a shark. I thought they had like a hologram of a shark for him to race. Further proving my point. <laughs> like, he needed all kinds of special enhancements before he could even come close to racing a shark. You would need even more enhancements to come close to racing a peregrine falcon. And I'm saying I would lose. I can race anyone I want at any time. Doesn't mean I'll win. Okay. But the fact that you even have the race itself means that you consider... You you think there's going to be a possibility of victory. Dude, I've seen a guy get lapped in the 800 meter dash. That's two laps. Which is two laps around the track. <laughs> oh, no. That's terrible. So I don't want to hear that. Oh, God. <laughs> Okay, but I'm sure even that guy thought that, hey, I might not finish last, or, like, I at least have a shot, like, somebody could trip, you know? Alright, maybe, maybe. Like, even if the Peregrine Falcon was shot halfway through, it's probably still gonna beat you. Regardless. But that pursuit method that Peregrines, that I was talking about earlier, is only one way that Peregrines will catch and kill their prey. Um, the other is perhaps the best-known behavior of the Peregrine, which is known as the stoop, where they're diving. So during this hunting method, the peregrines will fly to hundreds or thousands of feet above their prey, then tuck their wings and rocket toward the ground in a breathtaking dive to catch the unsuspecting bird in midair. During the stoop, they can reach speeds of 200 miles per hour, which is where that number comes from, making them the fastest animal alive. And that's how many people know about the peregrine falcon because of this claim to fame. And while this may seem like cheating, because they're getting a lot of help from gravity in this maneuver, um, the level of control and overall insanity involved in this behavior really shouldn't be overlooked. Because while other raptors dive to catch prey, none reach the same speeds as the peregrine. 
often they're traveling at such speeds that the impact itself will kill the prey. So they don't even have to use their talons or their beak or anything. They just hit the prey and boom, dead. But to me, at least what was most interesting or really counterintuitive was the fact that the speed of the attack actually makes it much more effective in terms of how they can control the dive. Because when they're moving that fast, it requires much less movement on the part of the peregrine to alter their course, if that makes any kind of sense. Maybe elaborate on that a little more. So I'll admit, I when I was researching this, it seemed really confusing, but the, they compared it to a bobsled team or like a loser or someone in the skeleton in the Olympics, right? Basically, in that scenario, their velocity and the fact that they're moving forward with a lot of speed is what keeps them on track, right? So in other words, if you get moving in a straight line in one direction, it like that momentum will keep you on course, right? Whereas if you're moving at a slower speed, you don't have as much momentum, and so you're more easily thrown off course. If that makes sense. Okay, I, th- I think I'm getting it a bit more. Okay. The second part of this, too, is that when you're moving that fast, if you make a subtle adjustment, because of your speed, that subtle adjustment could dramatically alter your course. Are you following that? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Right? So that same concept applies to the peregrines. When they're moving at this insane speed toward their prey... Not only does their speed keep them on course and limit the amount of effort they have to put into the dive itself, but if they need to shift or adjust their course, then they really only have to adjust their tail feathers or wings a little bit to really change direction very quickly and very dramatically. Is that registering? Yeah, yeah. so it just takes a little bit of shifting for them to take a very dramatic turn right exactly and they've done studies on this where they've modeled the dives of peregrines repeatedly over several hundred iterations and it turns out that the faster the peregrines are going the less they have to put into the less effort they have to take into changing course whereas if they're you know pursuing their prey naturally at the same level they have to put a lot more effort into actually changing direction, right? They have to completely flap their wings in a different way to alter their course. Whereas if they're diving, that might only have to shift a couple feathers around to achieve that same change in direction, right? This advantage really helps them out because at the same level, if they're just pursuing them at the same height as their prey, um, all that extra effort and movement required to change course means that they would probably be outmaneuvered by their prey, right? Pigeons and starlings are pretty good flyers. They can change direction pretty quickly, even more quickly than the peregrine can. So the peregrine needs to kind of, kind of take a different approach, right? And so that's where the dives come in. And that's why they achieve such great speeds during those dives is because the speed actually helps them adjust and catch their prey. But peregrines also have such excellent eyesight and body control that they can make these adjustments at these insane speeds while keeping track of their prey. So I really just kind of glossed over the fact that they make these adjustments, but the fact that they know how and when to adjust their course and where their prey is at that kind of speed is ridiculous. Like think about how it's very quick processing, right? Like think about the level of eyesight you'd have to have to keep track of a single target while moving at that speed. And then the body control to make the exact adjustment needed to hit your target at that speed, right? Like most of us can't even handle a car that's driving more than like 75 miles an hour down a highway. Really difficult to imagine for a lot of us, honestly, but all these hunting adaptations mean that peregrines are really deadly apex predators. And this unfortunately means that their populations are more vulnerable to human action as most apex predators are. And in the case of peregrines, they were susceptible to the effects of pesticides. Mm. So specifically 
that pesticide was dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, or DDT. Yep, that's that's the big one. Yep. Uh, this pesticide was widely used in North America and the world, really, uh, throughout the mid-20th century until it was eventually banned in the 70s. It's perhaps most famous for its effect on bald eagles, but peregrines were pretty much affected in the same way. The pesticide interfered specifically with their ability to lay eggs, so it caused the falcons to lay eggs which had shells that were far too thin, and as a result, the eggs would be crushed by the parents which were attempting to incubate them when they sat on the eggs. Um, in other cases, when the eggs weren't crushed, they just sometimes wouldn't hatch because of the DDT pesticide. This pesticide was particularly devastating for raptors because of bioaccumulation. That is, at higher levels of the food chain, DDT's concentration in animals increased. So the songbirds that the peregrines were eating had a higher DDT concentration that the, than the insects that the songbirds were eating which is why you hear about the effects of DDT on raptors like the bald eagle and the peregrine falcon, rather than songbirds like, you know, cardinals, chickadees, and robins. Mm -hmm. It's similar to mercury in fish. Generally speaking, the biggest fish have the most mercury and you should eat them less frequently. Right. That's a fantastic comparison. It's the exact same, uh, it's the exact same theory, just a different chemical. That's all. So, DDT was so catastrophic for peregrines that by 1964, there were no nesting pairs in the eastern United States. Oh my god, that's bad. They were completely gone from the eastern U.S. Including Alaska and Canada, there were fewer than 325 pairs in all of North America. So there were less than a thousand peregrines on the entire continent. So, eventually there was this remarkable effort to save this species, um, which was aided, aided significantly by two major pieces of legislation. The first was the ban of DDT, which was enacted in 1972 in the United States. Um, and the second was the Endangered Species Act, on which the peregrine was almost immediately listed. Um, another factor working in the peregrine's favor was that this species is, is very popular in captivity people breed them a lot for hunting. So there was a ready-made captive population which could be used to replenish the wild species. Uh, that's fortunate. I'm sure that helped a lot too. However, this recovery was unique in one way because instead of trying to just protect the peregrine's natural habitat and release those birds back into their natural areas, um, the young falcons, or Iases, I think Isis? Yes, that is what they call a young peregrine. And it is Who? Who calls them that? That's just the official term for a young falcon. Like in falconry, they call the young Isis. That it, it it sounds very aristocratic to me. It does. It you know, if you are rich enough to be able to like afford a hobby such as falconing, I feel like you you just call them whatever you want just to really flex on all the poor people. Sure, sure. But you should also know that it looks far less noble on paper because it looks like eye asses. <laughs> Which is the only reason I included it in the script. <laughs> but the Iases were raised and uh, acclimatized to urban areas. The reasons for this are numerous and when you think about it, make a lot of sense. First, Cities, the cities are a lot like the cliffs where peregrines naturally live. They're basically just huge, steep rock structures. So it made sense that the peregrines would feel at home there. Second, these cities already had healthy populations of birds like rock doves or pigeons, uh, starlings and blue jays, all of which are birds that the falcons hunt. And the lack of other predatory birds meant that the peregrines wouldn't face competition for prey like they would elsewhere in more natural areas. Third, there were concerns that the Iases would become prey themselves to animals like raccoons, foxes, and large owls, which are generally less prevalent in cities than they are elsewhere. Another reason to pursue this action was that it had actually occurred elsewhere, 
Peregrines had been known to nest on cathedrals in Europe, and there was even a single peregrine known as Scarlet, which attempted to nest on a building in Baltimore in 1978, before a lot of these urbanization efforts started to take place. So there was reason to think that the peregrines would feel at home in large cities. Yeah, if you really squint, big skyscraper, rocky cliff, there's overlaps. All this being said, I'm not going to pretend that there weren't hiccups to this process. And oh boy, were there hiccups. The first one that's actually really sad is that uh, many large skyscrapers have huge glass windows. And um, those huge glass... A lot of... You shouldn't be... A lot of falcons splatter. You shouldn't be laughing at that. It's it's quite sad. Uh, those huge glass Especially windows... Like they're hitting 200 miles an hour. Well... That's when they're diving toward the ground. They're not hitting the windows at 200 miles an hour, but... Okay, a, ge- a generous 70. Yes, then. at 70 miles an hour, it's still equally fatal. Um, those huge glass windows are dangerous for all birds, by the way, not just falcons, but it was nevertheless an obstacle for the peregrines. Second, peregrines don't like to build nests, as I mentioned earlier. So sometimes they would lay eggs on the edge of a skyscraper or on a window ledge only to have the eggs just roll off the side because they didn't bother building a nest. Fortunately, this was pretty easily remedied by just providing boxes for the peregrines to lay their eggs in. So that one at least was pretty fixable. Now, uh, the third hiccup was that some people like their fancy, specifically bred pigeons. You know, they have, you know special wing patterns or colors or things like that. People breed homing pigeons. It's a hobby that some people have. Mm. The unfortunate part is that the peregrines also like those pigeons, but for very different reasons. So the peregrines would hunt and kill those specially bred pigeons. As a result, a couple of the more quote unquote enthusiastic pigeon folk were actually documented shooting the peregrine falcons that were living in cities. Except one who is noted as uh, uppercutting them and biting off their ears. <laughs> Mike Tyson, he likes his pigeons. <laughs> yeah, and and he did it just like he just kept crawling onto buildings and just punching them, stomping on the eggs. The fourth main hiccup was that the peregrines would often encounter people, as you would expect in a large city but specifically construction workers that were working near their nests. Oh, yeah, I didn't think about this. I will say, usually these were pretty peaceful interactions. The peregrines generally didn't care about people being near their nests. People were near the nests all the time. The workers generally didn't bother the peregrine nests because they thought the peregrines were cool or just didn't care. And so usually it went pretty smoothly, But the workers were dive-bombed by the peregrines from time to time. Um, However, I couldn't find any verified instances of a person being seriously injured by a peregrine. Um, Okay, that's good. There were some cases where the peregrines would scratch the workers and sometimes they drew blood, but nothing too serious. And nothing, I don't think anyone was hospitalized because of a peregrine attack. Let me say that. Okay, that's that's very good. Glad we can all coexist. Right, right, exactly. That being said, the workers did mention all of the dead pigeon heads which were littered around their construction site. But, despite these hiccups, the urbanization approach was still quite effective, on the whole. So much so that urban peregrines became a huge part of the wild population. By 1993, nearly 75% of the 43 nesting pairs in the Midwest were in urban areas. So, often, captive-bred urban peregrines would nest in cities with a wild-bred mate, which further demonstrated just how well ta- just how well tailored to cities the falcons were. Then there were efforts to introduce peregrines into cities across the United States, New York, Boston, Baltimore, Philly. A lot of attention was was put upon efforts to introduce peregrines in Atlanta, um, which did eventually succeed in 1996. 
And this was significant because it marked the first time that a peregrine had successfully nested in the state of Georgia in roughly 50 years. So even before DDT really started taking its toll, there weren't peregrines that were really breeding in Georgia until they started nesting in cities and until these efforts were were put in place. And by 1997, New York City alone had 12 breeding pairs. Which New York City is a really is obviously huge, but birds of prey are pretty territorial and they have large territories. So the fact that there were 12 pairs in New York City is pretty remarkable. The efforts to restore the peregrines, including these urbanization efforts, there were also efforts to release peregrines in the wild into more rural areas with cliffs that more closely resembled their traditional natural habitat. All these efforts were so successful that the peregrine falcon was removed from the endangered species list in 1999 with a lot of fanfare, and that official ceremony was actually held in Georgia, not far from where the peregrines were introduced in Atlanta. Well, that's good. I was going to ask if they had turned around. And you said the majority of them now live in cities more so than they do in the wild. At this point, it's about 60-40. I, I mentioned that to emphasize how essential these urbanization efforts were for the recovery of the species. Like when they were first reintroducing peregrines into the wild, they really focused on putting them in cities, which is really, really unique for recovering endangered species. That's a novel idea for any species, I yeah, think. Honestly. That you focus on getting it established in the cities first. Right. Which is why... It worked, obviously. Yeah, and that's why I felt it was worth talking about, because it's such a unique conservation story. Because in this case, we managed to find a way for that species to coexist with humans in our most densely populated areas. So... Obviously, this isn't a solution for all species. In a lot of cases, the species that are endangered are endangered because human actions really impact them negatively, and um, they feel really stressed out around a lot of people. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, peregrines are really uniquely suited to city life. However, it does demonstrate the benefits of a multifaceted conservation approach, and that our goal in the end should be living alongside animals like the peregrine, sustainably in the long term. And that when we focus on conserving a species, you know, that has been affected by our actions, we shouldn't focus on one specific habitat if we can avoid it, because that one habitat, you know, is subject to any number of different effects. So with the peregrines, we were lucky because we were able to reintroduce them onto the cliffside habitats where they naturally live, but we were able to also try to introduce them into cities. Yeah, and I think it's also interesting that most of, I would say pretty much every wildlife species, I'm sure there's an exception, there are always is, they didn't evolve to live in cities. It's usually they had traits that made them suited for other environments that just happened to overlap that allowed them to perfectly thrive in an urban environment. Right, right. Like, rats did not evolve to live in cities. They evolved to live in different habitats. And then over the years, they just happened to have the perfect set of features to allow them to cohabitate with people. Right. Either that or those species were generalists that could adapt to a wide range of habitats and managed to find a niche in a city. Yeah, generally speaking, generally speaking, the <laughs> generalists that are small are what do well in the cities. Right. And and it's cool because the peregrine falcon is the opposite. That is a apex predator, essentially. I'm assuming they don't really feed on trash. Not that I know of. I mean, I'm sure one would snag a fry if it's like sitting there. I mean, what animal wouldn't, if I'm being honest? I actually think the peregrine falcon wouldn't snag that fry. I think if you if you handed a fry to it, it tasted. I I personally just most animals do. I personally think the peregrine is more likely to bite your finger than it is the fry. It it would have no concept of a French fry. It would probably just think it's an extension of your finger. Yeah, but then you said that a lot of them came from captive populations. I'm sure some of them were fed a commercial diet at some point. Right, but that commercial diet consisted of you know dead birds and meat and the yeah, remains of rats. Probably ground up in a pelleted form. 
when they raise uh, captive endangered species, they try to give them food that is most similar to their natural environment. They, they oh, don't mess I'm not around. talking about the conservation efforts. I'm talking about the people who are just keeping them for fun. I guarantee you there's some commercial falcon chow. Actually, I don't know what they feed commercially bred falcons, but... See, I'll be some. I guess, but I... Anyways, it it is cool that they are feeding primarily they're a predator. Yes, yes. Although the point should be made that while they are an apex predator, and it is unusual for those apex predators to live in cities, they are feeding on those small generalist species that have been hugely successful in species in uh, cities. So they're really just kind of the next rung up from those, you know, pigeons and rats and mice that are everywhere in any city. Mm-hmm. So, and also you said in their natural range, they would not be the top predator. Uh, not quite. There are still... So they're kind of just in the perfect spot where they can be the top dog in the city, but nothing really bigger than them can be. Right, right. So they're still kind of second, just under... I wouldn't say second tier, but just under first tier. Like, there are still owls and eagles that will prey on small peregrines if they have the chance. Um, Again, mostly on the young, because once they're adults, they really don't have natural predators. Like, they can outfly pretty much any eagle or owl or anything else that would want to prey on them. Um, but when they're younger, yeah, they do have some predators. So I wonder, I don't know if someone studied this, if not, someone should, if we could like see what percent of human food kind of in a roundabout way makes it into their diet, because they're feeding off of like pigeons, right? And uh, guessing sparrows, a lot of urban birds. Yeah. I'm wondering if like, those birds, they're for the most part, they eat a lot of trash, right? They people feed them breadcrumbs. They'll scavenge food, you know, McDonald's fries. Yeah, I wonder, like in a roundabout way, how much of that is like part of their diet, you know, through the second degree. Um, like how reliant are they on people feeding pigeons for them to in turn eat the pigeons? Probably extremely reliant, if I had to guess. Yeah, pretty cool. I don't know the answer. I think it, yeah. So I would look into it someday. Yeah, that would be a cool study. But, um, yeah, that's my piece. And that is the Peregrine and the incredible urbanization efforts that were undertaken to save the species. That's really cool. I did not know that they were introduced to urban environments. I always assumed they were just there. Oh, no. This was completely done on purpose. Um... Like I thought they just worked their way into it. You know, they just happened to be there one day and they did well. I didn't know they were intentionally put there. No, 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 no. Like I said, there were there were instances where peregrines had been introduced or where peregrines had just nested in or around cities. Like I mentioned the cathedrals in Europe and um, that one peregrine in Baltimore. But peregrines would not exist in cities the way they do today if it hadn't been for those reintroduction efforts that occurred 20 or 30 years ago. Um, This was very much done on purpose by conservationists to save the peregrine falcon. Yeah, that's really cool. Good for them. Glad we can still hang on to them. Absolutely. Me too. Um, Yeah, at one point, uh, my dad was actually working in downtown Baltimore in one of those skyscrapers and Every now and then during a meeting, they'd have a like a flock of pigeons just fly by their window. And then all of a sudden, just poof, they'd see one of them just disappear <laughs> in a cloud of feathers. They're just gone. And they're like, oh, that was the peregrine. <laughs> like, That's the only proper response to it, too. Just, oh. Right. It happens so suddenly. Like, you don't even, you barely even see the peregrine. Like, we can really, we really can't even see them, like, with our naked eye when they're doing this maneuver. It really just is an explosion of feathers, and then there's one less pigeon in the flock. Um, that's generally how we perceive it. But, yeah, they're a really cool addition to our cities, if you ask me. But I'm a bird guy, so of course I'd say that. I'd agree with you on this one. Anyway, what have you got for me? Okay, so I there's a lot of... I think interesting animals and how they adapt to urban environments, but it was tough to find one 
that wasn't like your kind of typical small generalist. Okay. So rats, roaches, pigeons, squirrels. Like I wanted to kind of avoid that. I want to do something cool. Right. And you knew I was already going to talk about the peregrines, so you couldn't talk about that. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't double down on that one. But I, there was one that stood out to me because it is very unexpected that it might thrive in urban environments. And that's the Asian water monitor. Really? Which is the second largest lizard on Earth. Okay, this is completely new to me. Yeah, I had to, this was a bit of a deep dive. I actually found some very unexpected sources, which I'll bring up uh, towards the end. <laughs> okay. But yeah, this is, it was cool. So I'll go over the basics on the lizards, just so you know what they're about, their life near human developments, and then I'll end with why they thrive in urban environments, or at least why I think they might. Okay. Okay, so first off, Asian water monitor is a large lizard native to Southeast Asia. The scientific name is Varanus salvator, which roughly translates to savior lizard, savior of the lizards, lizard savior, and a Arabic origin. Mm, okay. Although the term monitor came about because a lot of these lizards tend to occasionally stand up and look around. And I don't know if they're actually monitoring the area, but that's where the name came about. It looks like they're standing up and scanning the horizon. Okay. And uh, I do have to mention this. At one point in my research, I looked up Asian water monitor. I came across a Chinese research paper, which was about measuring fluid levels in people. It's It was the wrong Asian water monitor. <laughs> it, it was pretty funny. I had to mention it. The Asian water monitor really doesn't want people to be dehydrated. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not. Okay. Anyways, these guys are big lizards. So in the monitor family, which contains most of the largest lizards on Earth. Yeah, it contains most of the largest lizard species on Earth. The biggest being the Komodo dragon. These guys are number two. So your average estimate places them between five to six feet uh, maybe up to seven for a really big one, so about 1.5 meters to two meters, oh. and about 40 to 60 pounds. Oh, wow, okay, so big boys, real big boys. They're very, they're mostly tail. Not all tail, but they have a very long tail. Okay. So it's not like it's just pure muscle. But still. Yeah, I mean, the largest recorded one ever was over 10 feet long, or about three meters. Yeah, and so so about nine and a half feet in the cold? <laughs> yeah, just about. Uh, yeah, these are big guys. Now, of course, you'll find a lot of populations where they're smaller, maybe only three to four feet. There's a big range with them, but still, they can get very big. Okay. Big lizards. And they're your stereotypical predatory monitor lizard, kind of a brownish black in color, maybe some yellow highlights, large claws and scales, a somewhat pointed snout filled with sharp teeth and a forked tongue that they'll flick out like a snake. All right. And they're either basking in the sun like a pancake or they're kind of slowly lurking around like they're on a late night grocery run. Wait, wait, wait. Like a pancake? Yeah, they just lay there. They sun themselves. When was the last time you saw a pancake basking in the sunlight? All right. Well, how would you describe an alligator sunning itself? Sitting in the, He's just flat, sitting in the sun like a flower. It's not like a flower. Flowers aren't flat. He's flat like a... They just... They sprawl out. They want to sun themselves. All right. Give me a minute. But a pancake is not the right way to talk. To, it's not the right They, they flatten out. They want to sun themselves. Increase surface area to warm themselves up better. Right. I understand the concept. I'm just saying the metaphor is a bit off. Well, it's a lot better than flower. <laughs> Except that flowers actually sit in the sun, and some of them actually turn to match the sun, so... All right. Flowers don't have a choice in that regard. Sure, but it, it it's a flower. He doesn't pick where he grows. Okay, then how about this? How about it lays in the sun like a napping dog? Fine, I guess. But I feel like these guys are more likely to lay in the. We're moving. <laughs> okay. Like think think like a turtle uh, on the uh, on a park, like a warm spring day. Turtle on a rock. Okay. Cool. So these guys are generalists. 
They're known to feed on fish, mammals, birds, insects, crustaceans, frogs, eggs, reptiles, other monitors, as well as scavenge corpses or trash. At least one occasion they've been documented feeding on a person, but this guy was actually a murder victim. They didn't kill him. They just took advantage of what was there. Okay. So they were just accomplices after the fact. Yeah, I guess so. They're cleanup crew trying to hide the body. Right. They're just they're, they're, they'll eat anything. They're just really good friends with the murderer. Exactly. So there's actually some debate on whether or not these guys are venomous. So I don't know if you recall, but the Komodo dragon, at one point, it was thought that they had a septic bite. Oh. But that kind of got retcons, and yeah. it's I believe it's true venom now. Okay, yeah. Some people argue that this entire genus of monitor lizards have venom. It's just very weak and really not noticeable. It's like it's on its way out. It's not that needed. Okay, so are they closely related to the Komodo to the Komodos? Yes, they're in the same genus. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I they might even have a range overlap. Really? All right. Or maybe at one point, Komodo's range is very small now. Their range is pretty yeah, big. The Komodos only live on a couple islands, right? In Southeast Asia, which is where you find these. Okay. All right, that makes sense. What else? Oh, yeah. So water monitors, they, of course, found near the water. They prefer wetlands with a lot of dense foliage to live in. But they are known to burrow, swim, and even climb trees when they're younger. So they do take advantage of a wide variety of habitats. But usually they're found with some association near the water. Right. That makes sense. It, it, it It's a very good retreat for them. Right. And it's also in the name. It is in the name. They ought to live up to it. Uh, a full-grown water monitor does not really have many predators, excluding crocodiles or leopards. But thanks to a lot of like recent changes in their environments, there's not a lot of those. Really, the main predator, for a full-grown monitor at least, is probably people, which may hunt them for meat or leather or rarely collect them for the pet trade. They do not make good pets, by the way. I I would not pursue that avenue. All right, and that's saying something coming from you because you have a, a much wider range of what is considered an acceptable pet than most people. No, I think I like weird pets, but you should be able to realistically care for it and a six-foot monitor lizard your average person can't do. Right, but that's my point is that you like weird pets. I like weird pets. You Get a leopard gecko. You want a lizard? You really want a monitor, get an Aki monitor. They only get about two or three feet. Okay. So now we get to their interactions with people, and this is going to be a little tough. I'm going to be making a lot of generalizations ahead. For starters, these guys have a huge range in many different countries and regions. They cover pretty much all of South slash Southeast Asia. It's a very big portion of the continent. Yeah. Yeah. There are many different cultural perspectives towards these monitors. In some areas, they are pests and frequently hit by cars. In others, they are a delicacy or desired for their leather hides. And some, they're protected or even encouraged in like rice fields where they may eat crabs that hurt the crop yields. They're very common in some areas. And in some areas, they're pretty much extinct from those ranges. And it kind of goes on. Some some cultures view them as bad luck. Others view them as good luck. Wow. So I'm going to kind of generalize them a lot because a lot of these papers are from different countries. Okay. Okay. Not to mention there's so many different subspecies and populations. So I am lumping them all together. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if this got split up into maybe multiple species in the future because it's just has a very large range and several subspecies. Do they still interbreed? Like, do these populations still connect with each other, or are they mostly separate? Uh, I imagine they're probably fragmenting more now, because that's just the general trend for most wildlife. But uh, definitely something that needs to be researched. Interesting. Okay. Anyways, uh, what really interests me about these lizards are that they are large carnivores, but they still exist in urban environments, and that's typically not the case. Like we already mentioned, most urban animals are scavengers or generalists, or if they're carnivores, they're smaller. You don't find wolves living in the suburbs, 
but you could find a fox or a coyote. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Asian water monitors are fairly known for their tolerance of urbanized zones. And despite their range fragmenting, they still cling on really well to the fringes of these zones. You can frequently find them in areas including farms or settlements and food storage areas. In some of these, they're actually welcomed, like grain storage, because they will feed on rats and they won't feed on the grains. Okay. In other words, how we should probably view snakes in a lot of areas. Yeah, that hit the nail on the head right there. I already mentioned that they're sometimes welcome in rice paddies. Another area they're abundant in is actually palm plantations, which is a big surprise because these are typically areas of very low biodiversity. Yes. Just not a lot of wildlife can thrive there, which is why palm oil is such a hot topic nowadays. Mm -hmm. But these monitors, they've been documented there. They've been reported there. They seem to do just fine. Really? Okay, that's a huge plus for them. Yeah, so one study I read took place in Indonesia. And this has been criticized in the past for its over-exploitation of water monitors for the skin. And this paper talked about their habitat usage in response to people. So probably not a huge surprise. They generally seem to avoid people in this situation with low amounts directly near the urbanized zones. But what they do come near are the garbage piles. Hmm. Okay. And even though these guys show a preference for live prey, they will eat food scraps, and they have a highly advanced advanced sense of smell, well, that leads them right to these trash piles. And in some areas that don't have the best trash management, it is literally piles. Like, it's a hole, and they pile their trash in it, and the monitors love it. So, basically, these are like Southeast Asia's answer to raccoons yes <laughs> yeah it's if raccoons got seven feet long and were scaly yep okay gotcha pretty much uh yeah and there's even some new interesting behaviors where they compete over the trash piles usually when monitors compete over like territory or food they physically duke it out it actually kind of looks like they're hugging they both get upright grab their arms around each other, and kind of go side to side. Well, to be fair, with human males, sometimes you can't tell the difference between an aggressive hug and a fight, so... Yeah, especially after a couple beers. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, but what's interesting is these trash piles, they seem to be more likely to just do a show of size instead. So I don't know if that's because maybe they deem it's not worth it, or maybe there's just enough trash that they can find another. So they're more likely to just do a show of size and the larger one gets the food. Okay, so they just treat the trash pile like Walter Frey treats wives. Like, if they lose one, they're just kind of like, well, I'll find another. Ah, oh, that's a classic Walter Frey moment. Walter. Walter. Yeah, it just shows I have no clue who that is. Watch Game of Thrones for the thousandth time. <laughs> moving on. Yeah, so in this study, the trash piles were usually on the edge of towns, or it was actually campsites, which is like, I don't know, camping in the U.S., that's like a big no-no. You don't have trash piles at campsites. Yes. Unless you really love black bears. <laughs> or, you, yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> yeah, so this one, they weren't super close to people. But there's another one in Malaysia. And this took place in a popular tourist area. And in this one, they did a stomach content analysis. So initially, they were concerned that the monitors were being attracted to sea turtle nests and eating the eggs. Because this was at a sea turtle sanctuary that was also a popular resort. So a lot of people go to visit to see the sea turtles. Right. It turned out that they were actually feeding primarily on trash left behind by tourists. They were visiting the turtle sanctuaries. About 75%, I think. Oh, wow. Which okay. suggested that if the people weren't visiting the beaches, <laughs> the monitors wouldn't either. And they still were eating sea turtle eggs also. Oh, no. So it's kind of like they're going for the trash. And it's like, oh, you know, if I see a sea turtle egg, I'll do a little snacking. Come for the trash, stay for the sea turtle eggs. <laughs> Pretty much. And it's really cool because... 
They've been documented being found closer to urban areas in popular tourist seasons where they are fed food scraps by tourists. Yeah. Sometimes inadvertently. And then dispersed for the rest of the year. It's not quite known if this is because they are aware that that season means there's more food in these areas or if it just happens to be in cycle with, you know, maybe a yearly migration for them to move, focus on breeding instead of eating. Right, right. But it'd be really cool if they were adapting with the tourists. That wouldn't surprise me. And there have definitely been other animals that have adapted similarly. So, Yeah. So most studies have shown that these lizards prefer fringe habitats near the urban environment, but they still like some wetlands to retreat to. So they're great at the edge where they can get to the trash, but they still need some more woods to, you know, get away from the people, get away from it all. Right. That seems to be a pretty consistent theme with a lot of animals that are doing well with, you know, human intervention. Uh, Those tend to be species that exist along edges of habitats. Or between habitats. Yeah, I know. White-tailed deer is a big yes, one. Yes, that is exactly where I was going with this. White-tailed deer love to walk around between fields and woods. And humans naturally create a lot of those environments. So, at least here in the eastern U.S., white-tailed deer are just everywhere. They're really exploding. Because we create the perfect habitat for them. So, like I said, they like these trash piles. And sometimes it's... Because people feed them directly, like it's not uncommon for someone to throw their lunch at a lizard kind of walking at a distance. Of course, they'll go snack on it. Right. It's also more so from them feeding on trash that isn't managed the best. Mm-hmm. But there is one notable exception to this, and this is Lumpini Park in Bangkok, Thailand. Okay. Because here the lizards don't just feed on the trash. They are just laying around the park everywhere. Hmm. This is like squirrels in New York Central Park, except they are six-foot lizards. That's how common they are. That's ridiculous. Yeah, this is what really drew me into it. And like, you know how I said I found a uh, a kind of a, I used different sources for this segment? These were travel blogs that I relied upon. (laughs) Because all I had to do was go on YouTube and look up someone's like family vacation filmed on a GoPro, and they're just everywhere. I feel like if you live in Bangkok, it's so mundane to you because you just, you know, that's your life. You grow up with them. But for me, that's that's totally unique. Yeah, that also might be the first time we've ever used an influencer as a source for this podcast. (laughs) Maybe it is. So you can see photos of them just lying in the grass and on the shoreline in the middle of the day. There is a large kind of, I guess, a small lake, big pond in the middle of the park. So it's water monitors. They like the water. Yeah, yeah. But you can see them next to sidewalks, stages, and shopping centers. There's a video where one got lost and made its way into a (laughs) 7-Eleven. It was pretty popular for a while. The park is only about 142 square acres. It has boat rentals, stages, street vendors, etc. And is home to several hundred of these water monitors. Wow. And for the most part, they get, for the most part, they get along fine with the locals. Huh. Respect is a two-way street. You know, they won't hesitate to bite you or give you a tail whip if you really piss them off. But you can get as close as a few feet away from them without bothering them. Like, you can sit down on a bench there could be one about 10 feet away from you, and you really don't have to worry about it. Yeah. So, like, just squirrels that are 10 times the size. I don't know. I've seen squirrels attack people. I haven't seen many of these turn on people. To be fair, sometimes people approach them early in the morning, and, you know, they're not really active then. Much like humans before they've had coffee, so... <laughs> So sometimes there will be vendors offering food for lizards. Generally, this is not a good idea. Right. But I acknowledge it's pretty much inevitable in this situation. It is, but just... If they're not being fed by vendors, they're feeding on trash. Sure. Is the reality. It's... Someone's going to be feeding. Sure, but it's just good to reiterate that you prob- you should not feed wild animals. No, you shouldn't, but I do. Like In this circumstance, it's really hard to work around. 
True. I mean, they certainly do feed on trash. I'd be surprised if they didn't, and food scraps as well. But they are still active predators in this environment. Uh, like I said, there's a big pond there. They feed on fish there. Sure, sure. The difference there, though, is that if people are feeding them, then they expect food from people, and and then that eventually fall, you know, goes downhill into them eventually attacking people, and that's a situation we really want to avoid. Yeah, that's it. Usually ends up that way. I'm surprised I didn't find many reports of them attacking people, which is good. I'm yes, glad we can all get yeah, along. That that's great. Uh, yeah, like I said, there's a lot of them, and they are absolutely a tourist attraction. Like if you go to the park, I'd say that's probably what the park is the most famous for. Is you can just find these lizards, big lizards, without having to trek into the wilderness. I mean, it is is a park in a big city. They're just there. Yeah. And they're doing so well that in 2016, they actually had to reduce the population. They took about 100 lizards and moved them to a wildlife sanctuary. Really? Because it was, you know, it was starting to overflow. Wow. They're just a part of life there, like I mentioned. I'm sure some people love them. Some people hate them. Yeah. And if I grew up there, I probably wouldn't be impressed with them. But I didn't. I grew up in the U.S. I'm used to old people feeding baby ducks, <laughs> like stale bread. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah, so I also found a paper on their feeding behavior, like a full-blown published research paper about like a new feeding technique. Okay. That was, it took place exclusively in this park. It's basically about a unique hunting technique they use to catch an eel. I didn't read the paper in depth terribly, but what I found interesting is this is essentially someone on their lunch break that took a couple photos and published it. Like, they turned it into a research paper. Okay. That is like someone walking through Central Park, and you see a squirrel crack open a Dr. Pepper, and then you turn it into a research paper. Wow. Okay. You know? Kind of. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Like a full-blown paper just from one guy, and the photos were included, just taking photos of it eating an eel. And, like, I'm glad it got published. I'm not... I'm not reaming on it for the paper itself. I'm just like, wow, you could just do that on your lunch break. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, a lot of wildlife biologists, they they can't do that. True. True. But I guess this is really just us saying that somebody should have done a paper on pizza rat. (laughs) You know, I guess they should have. It's also worth noting that even though there are a lot of monitors in the park, it's likely that they're widespread. Now, I didn't find an exact like population estimate for this city. I went off of iNaturalist, and you know, there's a lot of sightings, not just in the park. Yeah. But this city has a lot of canals and draining systems in, in Bangkok. And from what I've seen, there are plenty of monitors in all these systems. They even occasion get on occasion they'll get stuck in a pipe or storm drain. Hmm. Okay. So, yeah, large predatory lizards getting about four to six feet long, with the largest being 10 feet long, are increasingly adapting to urban environments in which they either kind of act like a raccoon or they act like a squirrel in a park. And my main question is how? I don't really know why they can do it and other animals can't. So why do lizards succeed here, whereas a large predatory mammal like a wolf or a bobcat would not? We don't, like I said, we don't have wolves in these cities. I mean, you really don't even see like coyotes that often, unless it's more of a suburban environment. It might be a a warm versus cold blooded type situation where cold blooded animals might just, in some ways, be more suited to cities because um, they don't need as much food. So they don't necessarily have to spend as much time searching for prey because their metabolism is lower, but also they're allowed the time to sun themselves, you know, out in the open that they wouldn't normally get in the wild because their natural predators aren't present in an urban environment. And so as long as they're okay being around people while they're, you know, really sluggish, they basically have a lot more time to increase their metabolism and warm themselves than they would naturally in the wild. So there are some variables that favor them, at least in my view. 
that's actually exactly what I had written. Yeah. I think one of the big reasons is metabolism. So if you had a predator of similar size that's active, like a mammal, they have to eat so much more food in order to maintain that metabolism. And that is just not feasible in a city. Yeah. So metabolism is a big one. I think being a generalist helps no matter what. Absolutely. Because they're fine with scavenging. They'll eat trash. They'll eat food scraps. Probably not good for them. But something like a python would not thrive in this environment because they can't do that. Yeah. They, yep. A python can't eat french fries. At least not that we know of. Yeah. So <laughs> at least not that we know of. So the water monitors are very flexible, whether it be a fish or half a Big Mac or each other. Yeah. And I do think they're smarter than people give them credit for. I think they've demonstrated that they can adapt well to people. They like in the parks, they know that this person is not going to hurt them. They're not going to let the person pet them, but they're not going to run away or lash out. Mm -hmm. I think they are capable of learning, not on the levels with a dog or a monkey, but I think they're definitely smarter than people give them credit for. Probably. Yeah. Also, I don't think that they are, that threatening to people granted a bite could definitely do some damage i mean so could a scratch or a tail whip for that matter but they don't have the bite force or strength of something like an alligator of a similar size it, it doesn't seem to be life-threatening so it allows them to coexist better with humans and like you said they have very few predators and the predators that they do have have very restricted ranges for the most part so saltwater crocodiles and leopards are two of the main ones not a ton of them around. Right, right. So a lot of their predators are missing, especially in these urban environments. You're not going to find them there at all. And I think it's also a cultural thing too. Like some countries really like and protect them. Others don't. But in Thailand, where the park is, all monitor lizards are actually protected by law. Interesting. Okay. And I think it's because of that, they're rated as least concerned by the IUCN, which is as good as it gets for a conservation status. Yeah. yeah. Which is odd because it's a giant lizard and usually big animals do not do well. Yes, especially in rapidly changing environments. Yeah, so for mammals, big mammals generally don't do that well, especially predators. But even reptiles, big turtles or tortoises don't do great. Big crocodiles generally don't do great. Big snakes, not really either. Right. They're kind of the outlier. Yeah, the same concept applies to the peregrine. They're a predator that's really high up on the food chain. And again, they don't do well in environments that are rapidly changing, but they found a niche. And it's actually worth noting that most of the Varanus species, so most of the monitor lizards, actually are doing fine. They're not endangered. Hmm. With the exception of the Komodo dragon, which is a very narrow range, a lot of them, which are spread across Asia... Australia and Africa, they're doing okay. They all have least concern, or a lot of them have least concern status. Right, but the... So I wonder if they're also adapting in similar ways. Okay, but the Komodo dragon really was off to a pretty bad start. Like, metaphorically speaking, the Komodo dragon started running this race with only one leg. Like... Actually, I believe their range extended into Australia. But they historically have been but still reduced like their range was limited to begin with their range was much bigger but i think they didn't coexist well with early hunter gatherers right, right. i'm not saying it didn't used to be larger i'm saying that at that their range was more restricted than a lot of these a lot of these other species you're talking about yeah fair enough anyway and uh oh yeah one more thing i know in florida we have a lot of iguanas right they're invasive there, and you can see them in parking lots and whatnot. But I just got to add, iguanas are about half the size of these guys, and they're also oh. mostly herbivores. So it's not quite the same comparison. Because the first thing I thought was like, well, iguanas, but iguanas eat much more vegetation. Yeah. And yeah, they're not nearly as big. They're not yeah. active predators. Okay. Good to keep in mind. Yeah, so I... I think there's a couple reasons. I mean, maybe there's others I don't know about. Maybe there's some more cultural things about these lizards that keep them going. But it's just really interesting to see these, of all things, doing well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
That's a really interesting story to consider when you're talking about urbanization and how it impacts different species. But and that's my piece. All right, cool, cool. Yeah, I had not heard about that at all. So thanks. Yeah, I uh, I don't know where I came across it. Honestly, I might have seen it on like a uh, Instagram video of someone walking through the park. <laughs> and it prompted me to research it more. Like I said, that's it. Probably that's, was a travel. One of video. the first times influencers have really affected this podcast. Yeah, I guess so. Unless you consider us influencers, and I don't, I don't think we qualify. We we are not. Influencers. Yeah, we don't qualify. So, all right. So, very cool. Um. So with both of our pieces being finished, do you have any uh, thoughts about our next podcast? You know, I had a list of a couple ideas. I've just been writing down. All right, because... Do you feel strongly about anything? Yeah, so since you gave me a bird episode a couple weeks ago, um, I really want to give you an amphibian episode. I'm game. So I, I feel like we should do that next. All right. Yeah, amphibians. So that's that's my vote. All right. No, I'm, I'm in. I'm all, all right. for amphibians. Great, great. Be a sad episode. <laughs> well, they're not doing unless well. you're talking about pre uh, prehistoric species. Some of those are pretty cool, but no, I, I just met with the current status. Oh yeah, currently they're in a really bad situation, but uh, yeah, they're in a rut. You'll hear about that more in our next episode. So, with that being decided, do you want to take us out? All right. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a follow and review on your podcast app of choice. And if you have a suggestion for a future episode, you can reach us at souppotpodcast at x or theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com. All right, great. And until next time, I'm Rustin. And I'm Aaron. See ya.